Welcome to Persisters, an all-female live show and podcast hosted by Beth Rowe and produced by Alex Kern. Each week we'll play you a piece from our live show followed by an interview between the performer and us, Beth and Alex. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on Instagram at PersistersLA. This week we've got Paula Rudnick, television producer turned poet and activist. Hi, everybody. Um, okay, so the, the theme for tonight's First Sisters is investigation. I was thinking about this, that actually every poem is an investigation of a sort where you kind of wade through the rubble of your life looking for a clue. So the first poem I'd like to read tonight is called Happy Story. My grandpa asked me for a happy story since all the ones I told had planes that dropped out of the sky or children kidnapped from their beds. (laughs) I tried to think of something that would make him smile, like I did when he gave me paper rings from his cigars or taught me how to blow pink bubbles with bazooka gum. But the only happy story I could think of was the story of three happy children who were drowned. So now you understand why my daughter is a therapist. (laughs) Okay, the next poem is called Hair. More than long legs or clear skin or A's on my report cards, I wanted hair that laughed at misty mornings, foggy nights, hair that waved goodbye from green convertibles, hair that waterfalled French braided down pastel Fair Isle sweaters. I wanted hair that knew how to behave at sweaty dances, hair that jumped back into place after serving time in stocking hats, hair that hooked behind pink ears that sported diamonds passed down through the generations. I wanted hair that kayaked down the rapids without cream rinse to untangle snarls, hair like silk that boys would want to touch and sniff and press their lips against while whispering, you have such pretty hair. (laughs) The next one is called Fishtail. A stone's throw from a slippery place at unfamiliar water's edge, I cast my opalescent lure at your quick darting shadow. Near sinker's depth, you took the bait our reeling dance began. Breathless, twisted tango left you gasping at my feet. In show of strength, you smacked your tail, but you were at line's end when I loosed my hook and tossed you back, not as large as you'd appeared, swimming at a distance. Now you're wondering how I'm ever married. Okay. (laughs) This poem is called All You Need Is Love. Little Wayne, who could drop the little, now he's big, says the problem with having too much money is you never have enough money. (laughs) There's always somebody with more to make a higher bid for love, the thing that everyone is really shopping for. Buddhists say love lies within, except some exploitative ones who bed the trusting novice nuns, claiming it will bring them closer to their spiritual bliss. Do lonely monks want to be loved like gawky guys in singles bars for who they are, 
not shortcut faceless tour guides to the great mandalas center? How do we get the love we need, if not with money or deception or brute strength, always hungry after feasting, empty after being filled? The problem with getting too much love is you never have enough love. Ask Lil Wayne. Um, I spent a lot of my time doing nonprofit work for Planned Parenthood, which is an organization that I'm still very involved with. And um, I read about, in the days before Roe v. Wade, that there was sort of an underground railroad of women who helped other women who were needing to end pregnancies. And um, they all called themselves Jane as a way of sort of keeping their anonymity. So this poem is called Jane's. Plain Jane's and Jane Doe's, grizzled Jane's, post fun with Dick. Quiet Jane's, clearing waitress throats to let you know they were ready for your order. Housewife Jane's and student Jane's, nurse Jane's on their day off from the clinic. Teacher Jane's who empathized when men left tire marks after a joyride. Jane's didn't ask, what were you wearing? Did you have too much to drink? Don't you know you're beautiful is different from I've got your back? Some Janes answered phone calls and some Janes drove the car. Some Janes held a clammy hand while other Janes scraped unformed cells from love canals working in the dark. The next poem is called Provocation. There's no question I provoked him. I did it for the reason any drama queen creates a scene, to feel alive. He blinked through my soliloquies, my sobs and accusations, unmoved by many Oscar-worthy scenes. I didn't see the shadow flickering back behind his pupils till he made his final exit, leaving me without a co-star, ready for my close-up, most compelling work performed before an empty house. Um, my dad uh, fought in the Korean War, and when I go out and do political work, I wear his dog tags around my, um, my neck um, just to remind myself and anyone I'm talking to that this is the country that we're in now is not the one he was fighting for. And he died a couple of years ago. This poem is called Patricide. This is how I'd kill my father. Take him out for yogurt at the mall near the dementia place. Order him a chocolate cone. Slide pills into the swirls. He'd want to share, too big for one, but I'd just say, eat what you can. Mm -hmm. Then watch him take another bite, the way he puts one foot before the other without knowing where he's going. Is this my life now? He asks sadly when we drop him in the room with the chair he doesn't sit in and TV he doesn't watch. He doesn't understand how his clothes got in the closet or why the rest of us can leave when they take him down to dinner. He's mad that the attendants make him brush his teeth and change his pants and he can't shave inside the dining room at lunch. <laughs> of course you can't, my mother says. She talks to him like he's still real. I was hoping for a blood clot when they called to say he fell, a bubble to his brain to take him out, but he was fine. His legs weep fluid, drenching pants and socks, 
the fleece-lined scuffs he slides around in, grizzled phantom minitary robe. Eat your yogurt, I would tell him, if I didn't lose my nerve, resigned to soldier on like he is, one foot past the other, till the white flag's hoisted, and it's safe to carry off our dead. Thank you. Um, thank you. And to close, because I'm obsessed, a little rap. Ugly glower from the tower in the corridors of power makes us shudder, swallow sour as we watch the golden shower falling down on U.S. Bower, once so radiant with flower, before bully, red-faced dower, dark avower made us cower. Clearly, clearly time is now or never, and the choice is ours to make. Thank you very much. Hello, everybody, and Hello. welcome back to the Persisters podcast. Today, we are here with Paula Rudnick, who uh, you heard uh, was our poet for the evening. This is so funny. It's reminded me of the NPR ladies on uh, on Saturday Night <laughs> yeah, Live. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. That's a, have a lovely thank recipe you. I'm, for I'm toasted thank nuts. You. Thank you. We're having some nuts <laughs> and pretzels and blackberries. Um, Chocolate-covered almonds. Uh, Paula <laughs> is... <laughs> Paula is also um, went to Sarah Lawrence, as did I, and Love her it. daughter went to Sarah Lawrence, which is, it's been a nice way to get to know you by doing, most of it's been like, you organize a lot of the events. Um, oh, wow. Uh, the alumni events, but you also, you when did you start doing poetry? I've actually only started writing poetry a couple of years ago. I've been writing for years. My background, my professional background is as a television producer. So uh, I've always been kind of amused to writers and the part of the process that I always liked most about making films and TV shows was working with the writers. Mm -hmm. That was my comfort zone, but I was also kind of, you know, I never felt good enough. And, um, and I was, I, I'm a very linear thinker and so I had, um, I could organize things. So, you know, you tend to go towards those things that you are instinctively good at that people will pay you for. Mm -hmm. Right. So th that's why I had a, a producing deal at Universal and then I did freelance afterwards. And then when I had my children, I kind of retired, um, from the entertainment business, getting paid for, for doing it actually. And I devoted my time to uh, nonprofit um, organizations that I believed in, but I needed that creative outlet. So um, in 1996, I guess, my kids were uh, in second and fourth grade. We moved up to Santa Barbara, and I was losing my mind because I felt <laughs> isolated from anything that was stimulating. Mm. And I started writing, uh, I joined a writing group. I, you know, I'd been a WGA member for small things that I'd written um, when I was at Universal, episodic stuff. That's when the, when the other people, when yes. the other writers were on strike and they weren't allowed to write, I was a little bit of a, of a studio scab. But, I'm, <laughs> um, but, you know, I was there, and so I was, I was doing episodes. Um, but uh, I really needed a creative outlet, and so I joined a writer's group that met at a church in Summerlin, California, and I started writing personal narrative. And that was my, you know, it, it was, it, it gave me the freedom to break out of dramatic format. Um, and just, 
express myself. And when we moved back into Los Angeles a year later, I call it my year of living dangerously up there, <laughs> um, I kept doing that kind of, I guess you could call it memoir. It was sort of essays or, or uh, personal experience writing. And then I had a... So I've been writing for many years. Um, and um, a lot of it was humorous. Some of it, it's gotten more serious. And I had a conversation one day. I have a girlfriend who has a very operatic life. And uh, I got off the phone and I was journaling. And I just wrote down my impressions of her life and it came out in a poem. Mm. And I thought, oh, I'm going to do one of these a day. Which, of course, how long does it take? It's sort of like the New Year's diet. I stopped doing it. Once a day, fairly soon after that, but I had enough of a momentum that I continued doing it, and I purposely decided not to engage in any program that would show me how to do it in that form, so mm-hmm. that I could develop my own voice before I, you know, sort of learned the rules. So I was sure. doing it without the rules, and I found it very satisfying because... I'm kind of an OCD person, so it allows me to massage each syllable, each word, each line, each stanza, and I'm also very busy. So it allows me to have a sense of completion, mm, um, which is a very satisfying to me. That's wow. I, what I what I think is is so interesting about that is that you had the awareness to be able to go and and to say like a I'm not happy and what's going or like not I don't want to say happy but fulfilled or stimulated and 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 you were able to find something that was stimulating for you which I think a lot of people can't do that or don't know how to do that or or don't have the like the tools to be able to go and say I'm creative I need to find an outlet yeah. or are scared I think a lot of people it's like they're scared of their own creativity or like what lives inside of them. And I think everyone is a creative person and it's just about tapping into it. And once you do, it's like your life just, there's a part of it that just becomes so much fuller. What I think is so cool is that you were thinking, oh, I don't want to take a class in poetry. I've got to listen to my gut and just like do this thing that's flowing through me because I feel like, gosh, poetry, that seems so daunting to me. I don't know. I don't, <laughs> how do you even know how to write a, like, what? Well, I, I like, I, I also like what you said about not, like, yeah, not taking a class and having somebody tell you how to do it and figuring out how to mm-hmm. do it yourself, which I think was a big problem for me when I came to LA is like I left. New York and, and Sarah Lawrence where it was like, you find your own way and like you make what you want it to be. And then I came to LA and I just did what everyone told me I needed to do. And it wasn't until like a couple of years ago that I thought like, I can't do whatever. I'm not, I don't, I'm not good at doing what everybody else does. I have to figure out how to do it my own way. Mm-hmm. You fabulous Sarah Lawrence girl. <laughs> it's sort of, you're taking all your skill set and you're reimagining it in a new form and good for you. Good for you. Right back at you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So you talked about uh, your political activism and working with Planned Parenthood. When did you start doing political activism? Well, I joined uh, up with uh, Planned Parenthood when I kind of, when I had my children, which was many years ago. Well, you know my daughter. So she, Mm -hmm. my older daughter is 33 now. Mm -hmm. And um, I had my husband supporting me. And I had, um, my home life was settled and I wanted to give back because I had time to do that. 
and and Planned Parenthood sort of embodies for me a lot of the things that uh, that I feel think are important, which is women's rights, human rights, um, healthcare, education. I mean, a lot of the things that matter to me were kind of pulled together by Planned Parenthood. And I had a friend who was on the board, so I said, you know, I'm looking to get involved in some community activity. Tell me about Planned Parenthood. And it was at a time when, uh, I mean, it's just shocking to me that we are here again, that we keep cycling back to um, having to protect reproductive rights and um, and sensible, fact-based medical treatment for humans. But um, there was a big budget deficit in the state of California, and they had had this very successful peer education program in the schools where... Uh, Teens would be trained to talk to their to other teens and give them the straight skinny about, you know, how their bodies worked and how to protect themselves and all of this stuff. So that was very successful. So successful that it was defunded um, <laughs> in favor of God knows what else. Mm. And so when I came in, I thought I was going to help them raise money and that sort of thing. But what I wound up doing was giving sex ed talks to high school students, which was really kind of interesting. We had a one-hour module to teach them anatomy and physiology, um, uh, birth control methods, and uh, basically sort of... uh, communication skills to talk to their partners. It was a big order for a 45-minute, 50-minute class when, yeah. after lunch when they're asleep. Right. But, you know, so I developed a very kind of outrageous approach to it to sort of get them, um, get their attention, like sure. make them laugh, get their attention, be a little bit yeah. outrageous. Uh, and then as the time went by, because, you know, I, I think it's so important when you're raising money, if you're putting time in as well, you understand and you really become dedicated to the work, the mission of the organization. And because I had been there in the trenches, I wanted to give money and I wanted to raise money. So then I became a money raiser on their behalf. And then I became a board member for multiple cycles. And I'm still involved with them. The Planned Parenthood is doing young women who are you know, in their 30s, actually just turning 30, the chair of this event that I have been involved with. This is their third biannual event called Sexy Beast. And um, it's the collaboration of the art world and Planned Parenthood Hmm. to raise money to fund the agency here in Los Angeles. So this also combines two things that I'm really and have been very involved with, Mm -hmm. which is the art community um, and Planned Parenthood. That's so cool. So that's one of the things. And then, of course, I've become very politically active, which I never was in grassroots political work, just because um, I think the times demand it. Because, yeah. you know, I, I, I think that, forgive the word, but, but the, the need to get our country on track trumps every other activity or affects it. So somebody, I, I don't know if it was Obama, but somebody once said, show me your budget, I'll show you your values. And I think that's our, the same thing. That's like the um, Susie Orman oh, okay. says that about like, go. show me your bank statement and I'll tell you what's important to yeah, you. Exactly right. Exactly right. So I think that right now we must, we must write the ship of state right. for any of the other work that, that, um, that matters in the community and the nation to really have an impact. This is just crazy. It's crazy. So that's, that's what I'm doing. 
Um, uh, speaking about sex and uh, your daughter and my friend Allison, don't worry. Um, <laughs> we were actually in a lecture together called "Sex is Not a Natural." And sex is not a natural act. And um, oh, wow. and she actually was the one that she told me. I remember we were standing outside the theater building, and she was like, "Yeah, I have to take a lecture, and so I'm going to take this psychology one called "Sex is uh, Sex is Not a Natural Act." And I was like. I'll do that with you. <laughs> and so we took it. And it was interesting because it's about like all the stigmas around sex and how uh, we don't get to see the female anatomy and like and talk about it. And like when like what are the what are the names? What are the colloquialisms for the vagina? And until Eve Ensler did the vagina monologues, the word was not allowed to pass through people's lips. I mean, she really outed the wow. word. Uh, it, it's. It's true. I oh my mean, gosh, I was a six-year-old girl in college in the <laughs> vagina monologues. There's like a six-year-old girl <laughs> character. That was me. I played that. Really? Um, <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize that about um, Eve. Or yeah. I, yeah. Ensler. Yeah. yeah. I knew there's like a monologue in the vagina monologues about how there's like this woman was really self-conscious about her vagina. And finally she had like a guy, like a Doug or something that was like, it's so beautiful. And she said, like, everyone needs a Doug. And then like, it's I had my a dad's friend. Name. I, had, <laughs> I don't know if it was Doug. What's going on but here? I, I had a friend that was like, he wanted it to be his mission so that whenever he had sex with somebody, he'd be like, he, it's so beautiful. So he would like, <laughs> wanted to be that person for, he wanted to be a Doug. He wanted to be a Doug. Oh he wanted goodness. to be Alex's dad. Oh my gosh. He is a good guy. <laughs> um, but um, is, is he he's, single? <laughs> no, he's, he's wonderful. He's married to my mom. Oh, uh, I, I'm not that Doug. Oh, oh! I was like, what? I was like, what's happening? I was like, oh, I no, met your husband. He's lovely. In one, <laughs> one interview, we've ruined two families. Uh, oh my goodness! Uh, but how has uh, how what's it been like raising daughters in that like in in being somebody who's so. Um, aware of like politically aware or or active in Planned Parenthood in this day and age like how is that I mean I like I'm a woman but like right after the election I was like I'm so happy I'm not a parent right now yeah well I think just speaking for myself it took me years to really appreciate my mother in the way that she deserves Mm. and I think it's very tough and it's tough to be a parent because on the one hand, you want to set a good example. On the other hand, I think I'm kind of daunting. Uh, my daughter once said to me, she was maybe in her preteen, she said, I wish I cared as much about one thing, mom, as you care about everything. Mm-hmm. But I say to her, I wasn't always like this. I wasn't always like this. And I think that if you are lucky enough to have the the courage to look to your creativity and to have people encourage you that you have a sense of agency and that you are capable of making an impact on the world, that that feeds on itself and you grow and you say, I want to make a difference. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I try not to be... Um, to be too in their face and to sort of back away because anything I say can and will be used against me. And even more distressing for me as a parent is it will keep them from finding their own voices. So I don't know if that's an answer to the question, but it's yeah. it's a balance and it's a dance. And, um, 
And I hope that when they're away from me, that I can be somebody they want to emulate so that they mm-hmm. can find their own way into being active. And, and fortunately, my kids are, my husband is a really good guy too, and he's extremely philanthropic and generous spirited. And I think that in, I think they, are, they have become those people and they'll find their own ways For of expressing sure. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you have some of the nicest women as daughters. Thank you. They're, they're really, just I, they kind. Are. They're real, they are. They're they so are. kind. They are. They're really lovely girls. Um, Thank you. I've only met them once, but they seem lovely. <laughs> A lot of your uh, your poetry is um, very progressive and really uh, it makes it makes you think about aspects or or different perspectives in way that other writing doesn't. But there's one poem that I thought was like uh, the poem about hair. Mm, uh-huh. I love that And I just poem. wrote that recently. Oh, really? really? Yeah. yeah. That one was just like, it was like, like sometimes you just have to have narcissistic thoughts or like idealized versions of what beauty is to you. And like you have like obviously all this substance with a lot, with all your other work. And that one was like, it resonated in a different way that mm-hmm. I thought was cool. It also nailed it. I don't know. I'm very like the second you read it, I was like, "Oh, that's me too." Something the amount about of time and money we spend on hair, on hair, because it, 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 you know, our hair, our butts, are. I mean, mm. no woman, well, probably even the most gorgeous woman on the planet is self conscious about her feet or her this or her that. I mean, Something. I am, and I am the most gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty cute, honey. Is it your feet? I really you don't like fish your feet. For that. No, I actually have great oh. feet. Oh, can I see them? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, all you out there, you're not getting to see this. <laughs> I'll post uh, photos. <laughs> so, so it's a metaphor, and and I mm. think that. Um, I had curly hair and I grew up in a humid climate. Let me, I mean, that mm. explains it all. Where did you grow up again? I grew up in uh, New England. New, where mm. in New England? I grew up in Swampscott, which was a, a uh, an ocean community on the seashore, Swampscott, Marblehead. Mm. And then the summers mm. we spent on Cape Cod. That's right, because And I'm the from beach Cape and Cod. the yeah. fog and the, and, right. yeah. and it was always about, um, you know, it was the first thing that I thought of. I mean, if my hair had been great, I'm sure I would have gone on to other things that I hated about myself. But it just sort of like hung there. And, and it sort of became, oh, if I could just have, and I right. think every woman, if I could of just course. have, fill in the blank, then everything would be great. Right. And, and um, even when your hair turns out, you know, you make peace with your hair, then there's some other thing that the, if only, then I would be okay with myself. Yeah. And so I think that... Um, that that poem was really about um, all the ways that the hair sort of encapsulated my yearning for who I wanted to be and how I wanted to be perceived Mm -hmm. and how light and free and unselfconscious, which, by the way, is a complete illusion because it never happens. You know, I'm uh, way past, I'm past 60, and I'm still, I'm better, though. I will say this. Mm -hmm. I will say that the less good I look, the more okay I am with my looks. So if that's an encouragement to anybody out there, you know, that it's sort of on a sliding scale, that you will look back at any photograph that's taken now. If you look at it 10 years from now, you'll say, oh my God, I was really cute. But you don't have, it takes you a decade looking back, Mm -hmm. looking 10 years shittier to say, wow, I was great. So just own it now, ladies. Yeah, (laughs) That's all I can say. 
Also, Nora Ephron talks about that she when she was she said something about ten things I hate about my neck. Yeah, there's yeah. that. But I then also she said like I'm so excited for when I die. I don't have to worry about my hair. It'd be so. nice if we can get there before then. She didn't know it was it was so close around the corner. Poor Ephron. She she Nora was really a a real trailblazer. Um, yeah, she was incredible. Yeah, picture of her right there. My little. My, my yeah. little inspiration. And board. she was also a real champion for other women coming up. She really was that's a mentor. That's, mm. that's unbelievable because I found up until I started doing this show, I like really only collaborated with men. Uh, and I, um, and when asking, like when I needed help or needed to get to the next step or like have a mentor, all men. And it wasn't because I preferred working with, I think collaborating at that point was maybe easier, but it, they were just willing to help in a way that other women weren't. And I think that's changing now, but it's, that, that's amazing. I haven't heard that about her. And I feel like yeah. that's, I mean, well, you Lena can only Dunham, fix I think, it. was, uh, right. has, has She's, given her a shout out about it, but yes. I know other women as well who she mm. advised. And, you know, when you feel that the, I think part of the reason about men, like certainly coming up in, in entertainment, mm-hmm. when when the positions of power are primarily given to men, you know, it's it's a natural survival technique to want to have a guy on your side. And we've sure. made progress, but, but the reality is that um, it's still very many... Men feel threatened by women who are equal or better than them. Hmm. You know, because there's just so many jobs. And and then there's the whole sort of comfort zone of who is your posse. Right. And so it, it's we, we're, we're not there yet. <laughs> we're definitely not mm-hmm. there yet. No, but it's, it's, it's an interesting time period to be in. And it's so great that you are doing this and giving a showcase to women and their voices. And such diverse voices mm. in the couple of shows that I've been to that I've seen sort of the range of style and yeah. um, and voice and story narrative it's yeah. it's great it's great it's not boring Thank it's you. not oh, the same old same old thing yeah it's it's Completely. different and I think that was the part that I was so excited about about joining forces with Alex because I've been able to I've been lucky enough to bring in women within my community and very rarely have I reached outside of it to bring somebody in just because I know so many talented mm-hmm. people and um and what I'm excited about working with Alex is then I get her whole circle mm-hmm. of talented people and, and then I'm other gonna bring people, in the geriatric folks. My yes. God, are they funny? Yes, <laughs> and then you're gonna get your you. circle. Get, get everybody. <laughs> all, um, of the, all of the women. Your poem that you wrote about your dad mm. um, was really really beautiful, Thank and you, you can yeah. hear the audio afterwards. The whole audience is there's even somebody says beautiful and you say thank you Mm. which I really liked but there's something that we were talking about that we haven't dealt with is I mean we're starting to Mm -hmm. but like having your parents get older and what that's what that's like yeah so that's not really a clear question but but what is it like to to have that the person that taught you everything well I had a very challenging relationship with my father when I was growing up because Mm. he was um he fought in Korea, and right. so for the first year and a half of my life, he wasn't around. Right. And then when he came home, and this is true of a lot of people of that generation, he had this young family, 
and he had to put all of his own um, goals for himself. He was a really creative, very funny, very witty guy who wanted to be in advertising. He wanted to be Don Draper or at least uh-huh. one of the guys in the copy room. And he had two kids, and um, and in some ways, because he was given so much responsibility when he was so young, as you know, military people are given, it's really yeah. life and death mm-hmm. on the line. Um, he never achieved that level of mastery or or feeling of relevance again. Um, so that was a thing. But he was so smart and. Um, and couldn't wait to share it with me, which, you know, I'm, I, uh, he gave me a camera for my high school graduation, but before he'd hand it over, he had to teach me everything about the science of optics till I start. I left oh the my, room. That's such a dad thing. Such a dad thing. So um, he had a, he died when he was 90. So that was actually a very nice life. Yeah. And he was healthy for most of his life, really all of his life. He'd never been in a hospital but he developed um, Alzheimer's, right. which is a, a very horrible, mm-hmm. devastating situation, especially for anyone. But yeah. for someone who was so smart and so quick, um, and to watch it was so painful, which is, I, I think, the reason why uh, the, uh, the opening line came to me, because it just I, I just wanted to take him out of his misery. Sure. Um, and he was miserable, and in his lucid moments, he said... Uh, you know, to a nurse and when they took him to the emergency room once after he'd fallen at the facility, he said, you know my problem, I've lived too long. And I think when you can't be the person that you have been and want to be, you know, there's that quality of life thing. My mother is 91 and she is beyond amazing. I have drawers full of sweaters, she's still knitting me and sharp as hell and... um, that's and so very, cool. very, very. Does she live here? Or yeah, she, she oh, lives here oh, on, in her, in her, alone in her house, and I've she's met making. Both of your oh, parents. my my mother is yeah. astonishing, wow. but it's the luck of the draw yeah. in terms of health. So, sure. so um, it was very. It's it's great to have your parents as they age, because as I said in the beginning of our conversation, you um, appreciate them in ways that you that you maybe never did. Yet it's very poignant to see them diminished. Mm-hmm. So um, that poem was sort of about that pain. Uh, yeah. It was, yeah, I, I, I thought the angle was, yeah. And also Beautiful. even just, I ca- what I love so much about your poems is I can see all of, I can see everything. I can see the yogurt. I, I can just see like every image just so yeah. vividly in my mind. You just have a way of capturing something so beautifully and simple, simply. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, You know, I wanted, uh, I have to confess that um, until I started getting into this, I didn't read an enormous amount of poetry because when I would read a poem in the New Yorker or somewhere, you know, I would, I would go, huh? What? (laughs) And, and, and so I wanted to, um, when I started writing in that form, I wanted to tell a story or make a point in a way that, you know, was not just sort of like an essay that had, that resonated and haunted a little bit. That's a, a poetic yeah. term, haunting. Um, that it that it sort of sticks with you the way as the way like Leonard Cohen songs stick mm-hmm. with you. That mm-hmm. that you get it, but you don't get every single thing. And each time you hear it, you get it in another way and another level. And so I was wanting to write on that level, but not in a place where it was so completely abstruse that the audience would say, "Huh." Right. 
you do you have a, a nice way of making it in in the same way you make it approachable like you make you make poetry approachable and a little mm-hmm. bit more um stable yeah, thanks. yeah but no, thank without you. simplifying it, yeah. if that makes yeah. sense yeah without thank you well, i'm down. going for that it's um it's not always easy to do and there's a lot of them that just get sort of in the okay later pile yeah um that i pick up but one thing that i do do in terms of the creative process is um i will take essays or journal entries and I'll go with a highlighter and I will pick phrases or notions that I've um, that have just sort of spurted out yeah. and then I will kind of massage those and see if there's more to be explored there. So I sort of use my own writing mm. as my writing prompts, if you will. Mm. That's um, that's really I mean also if you're if you're doing it so frequently and also to kind of as a release that there's like you're going to have something new every time you go and going back is is like it's almost like looking through somebody else's work because you're not necessarily going through that again. Completely. And there's another interesting thing that happens, which is sometimes when you write something, you don't feel any emotion attached to it, and then you read it out loud Mm -hmm. in in the same session, and you start to tear up. And so you 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 know back to what Alex was talking about the the um, that everybody's creative. Mm-hmm. I think that fear the, the the blank page is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a ter- maybe one of the most terrifying things in life is the mm-hmm. blank page. But if you don't um, have to make it be anything other than what's on your mind at the moment, it doesn't have to be good, and it doesn't have to make sense, and it doesn't have to be anything. Then once you get it out. It's a release, so it's you know it releases you of, of whatever pent up stuff sure. is going on, and then your page isn't blank anymore, and there you are. Yeah. Do you journal? I do. Okay, every yeah. day or um, I tr- mm, I try to okay. um, I I try to do something every day, whether it's rewriting or uh, there's a writer named Robert Olin Butler who won the Pulitzer for short stories. He said sometimes when I when I edit. You can't just sort of be like a copy editor. You have to redream the stuff that is not working. Mm-hmm. So it's not a blank page, but that doesn't mean that you just add a comma here or there. Sometimes if it's, say, why isn't this where I want it to be? And sort of go from there in, a, in another tangent. And yeah, I, I have a, a we were talking about this earlier. I have a I have a script that just I think is so like the idea is so great <laughs> and no one responds to it, really. And one of my friends who's read the recent draft of it, she was like, what does it mean to you? Like, mm-hmm. what does this story mean to you? Because mm-hmm. I don't know what it means to you. Do you know what it means to mm-hmm. you? And I realized that I'm tr- I'm figuring it out. And so it's one of those things that like. Maybe I put it down for a little bit mm-hmm. and then pick it back up Absolutely. later. Like a crossword puzzle. Yeah. I do that. That's one of the reasons I like working in poetry is mm. that I do that all the time. 5.30 in the morning is a very, very fertile time for me to sort of, to sort of um, think about that, what it was. And sometimes the answers come, you know, like when you're in the shower or you're driving or, mm-hmm. you know, totally. it, this happens to everybody. When you're thinking about something else, they come at you from another angle. Yeah. But you have to set it down. So um, you don't have to give it years. Um, I think that, um, and, and I think beta readers, uh, you know, if you have people that you trust, like your friend who said, what does it mean to you? That's yeah. a, um, a probing question. And sometimes 
you're not sure what it means. Sometimes it emerges. I mean, that self-surprise, I think, is one of the most rewarding aspects of being involved in any creative enterprise. It's like, where did that come from? And do you have, like, when you're writing, do you have like a certain place that you like to write? Do you freehand? Do yes, you... always. Okay. Uh, in first draft, I am always um, freehanding, and I usually I usually sit in my bedroom. There's a beautiful light there, and I close the door, and um, I meditate. I almost always meditate before to get really? closer to, again, the dream state. You know the the writer Michael Cunningham who wrote The Hours and yeah. uh, he he his writing practice is he gets out of bed and he goes to his writing spot and before he brushes his teeth before he has his coffee while he's still sort of in that trance mm. he starts the process to get it going and there's all kinds of tricks that different writers have to get it going but so I do that to recapture that sort of because as I said, I'm very organized and I'm very linear and I run my life like a general, I have to put that self aside if I want to tap into a more lyric um, aspect to my um, thinking. To kind of be a little messy. Yeah, exactly. Not make sense. Not make sense. There's always time to make sense. One thing, speaking of messy, I think of Donald Trump. Um, (laughs) I thought that's where you were going. Yeah. Such a good segue. Such a good segue. And I did it so eloquently. Mm. Um, You did, because there was like this disgust on your face. You don't even need to say his name. uh, And it's just like, mm. having Donald Trump as a president, how, how has it affected you? Well, I was literally physically ill and so depressed that I worried myself for the first three months after the election. Mm-hmm. I could not shake it. Mm-hmm. I could not talk myself out of it. Yeah. And I think because I've lived through more cycles than you ladies, mm-hmm. to, to retreat from these, it was so hard to make these advances. Mm -hmm. It was so hard to get recognition for certain basic things that now, you know, we take for granted. Well, yes, of course, women should be paid the same amount for doing the same work. Or, of course, if you don't want abortion, then fund fund birth control. Um, and so many things. If the the air in Los Angeles used to be so much worse than it is now, and we made it better by putting restrictions on pollution-emitting machinery and engines and that sort of thing, this right. was hard work. Yeah. And now to find ourselves in the hands of someone who is wanting to throw all that out was... Very, very sad. I mentioned my father. My father was a, um, a real um, patriot in the sense of he was an honorable guy, and that's how he ran his life, and that's how I was raised. And to see this lying and this deception and, and, and the gaslight aspect of, um, you know, just because you say it's fake news, no, it's truth. And if you take away... I mean, I think every artist is really trying to communicate the the truth of the world as they see it. Mm-hmm. And if that truth is subverted in this very insidious way, then what are we standing on? How can mm-hmm. we improve yeah. our lives and the lives of other people? And it was extremely depressing, and it continues to be depressing. But 
the way that I dealt with it personally was to say, okay, I've, um, let me have a focus. So having a focus is always my way of dealing with grief and depression um, sure. and being overwhelmed and being short. So what I do, what I said was, okay, we have to flip Congress in 2018. Yeah. So I'm going to adopt a district and I'm going to put myself there, feet on the ground, wallet open, um, and bring my network and be as, bring all of the energy that I have to the work of doing this one thing. And if we all say, okay, I'm going to make a positive contribution this will not be forever. And the only thing that I can say, again, that age gives me this perspective, is that sometimes things have to get really crappy. Yeah. Before, you know, I grew up in a time where there was the Vietnam War gro- mm-hmm. going on, and there was a draft. And mm-hmm. so it was personal to me and to my friends and yeah. to the guys, my boyfriends. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was our lives on the line for bullshit. And so now when I, I see the kids imagine. in Parkland saying, we call BS, I say, yeah, kids, exactly right. Be- and we're going to support you. You lead, we'll follow. It's, it's, it's um, youth before wisdom mm-hmm. because you can do it. And I think maybe it's like it's so bad. It had to get this bad for people to come out of their stupor. So that's sort of... The, the, the silver lining of the whole thing. It's despicable. It's disgusting. And let's not leave it at Trump because the Republicans um, in Congress and everywhere who are so selfish, they're the enablers. And it couldn't, he couldn't get away with this shit if they, didn't, if, if they weren't so concerned with their own hides. And so it's always the youth that are the ones who are seeing their future down the line who are going to be more selfless yeah. in a way. So that's what I think about him, that disgusting creep. I can't believe that I think about him every day. Yeah. I know. It's, <laughs> a, it's, it's a all make the face. <laughs> On radio, we're all making the face. <laughs> the face of disgust. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have this show if it didn't happen. Well, there you are. So here's another positive thing that's come out of it. You know yeah. what? For me, it's so funny because I had just started dating my boyfriend who, who I'm with. Who's not named Doug. Who's not named Doug, <laughs> not named Doug. Um, and I just remember, similar to you, just and I was with her boyfriend, actually, the night before. And it was just like, I remember I, I came and I was wearing like a power suit because I was so excited. And I <laughs> yeah. brought like champagne. Yeah. And it was not good champagne, but it's champagne. And it just like the night just like got worse and worse. I called my yeah. dad and I was like, dad, like I, you said this wasn't going to happen. Like what's going on? And then all of a sudden it was just the worst night and we got so drunk and we passed so, around this, yeah. we called our sad bottle of champagne. And I felt like bound to those people forever because yeah. it was That's, just this like horrible, horrible moment where I was, I felt like it was a funeral. my footing. Yeah. I it felt was, like yeah. literally the ground had been pulled up yeah. under me, which I have kind of felt since, you know, cause it's like the same thing with my family. It's like integrity, honor, like honesty and just like try to be a good person. I'm like, this is like against all that I've ever been raised to believe and stand for. And I just remember the the next day playing Beyonce, my favorite Beyonce song all night long on repeat. Just like that's on, such a good song. Cause there's like, there are the trumpets. So there's like yeah. a triumphant. Like, I could only listen to, to black no, women. Could take him out. She could oh, take him God, out. Yeah. It's just so yeah. depressing. 
Yeah, I've never, I also got very drunk that night and I was actually working at the Black Cat at the time. And I was, that's why oh. I did the show there. I was oh. working at the Black Cat and then on, it was on what, a Tuesday, right? Yes. It was on a Tuesday. It was on yep. Tuesday. And then that Friday I flew to DC because uh, my cousin was getting married in, in, in DC and DC was so sad. And then that oh, next weekend, and then the I next had... day, that was. I think oh, that yeah. that um, I was amazed. I was in New York at, at the time, so I wasn't mm-hmm. in Washington for the march, but I was in New York for the New York City, oh. and and for the they were marching march? there. Oh no, just after the twenty like... first. Oh no, it was it oh, was ju- after the day uh, after the day not, after. not after. The, yes, right. Yeah, we we needed uh, we needed some time to recoup to sober <laughs> up from that long drunk. I've never Did woken up so hungover and crying. I woke crying. up crying well, and hungover, mm-hmm. and it was. Awful. It was like I had lost the love of my life, and it was just. I think, um, and that's like a really big reason why I wanted to start this show is because fifty three percent of white women voted for him. Yeah, yeah. And wake up, ladies. A problem. And as a white lady, it's my responsibility to make sure that that doesn't happen again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> really brought down. Okay. Um, Sorry. So no, I want to. Yeah. Uh, do you listen to a lot of Lil Wayne? I don't. Yeah, I don't. Uh, he he launched a new um, uh, he launched a new uh, fashion line, <laughs> and he's very entrepreneurial. And yeah. he's you know like a lot of um, uh, swaggering young musicians has a string of uh, romances uh, behind him. <laughs> but the notion I grew up listening to the Beatles, and um, and there's a lot. The human condition of never being satisfied is, on the one hand, what sparks us to continue to, to create and be and um, engage in the world. On the other hand, I'm very fortunate that I have as much stuff as I'm ever going to need. So what wanting then moves to another venue, but that wanting and... and um, and wanting to be loved. And all of it is symbolic. All of the stuff. I mean, this is, I think, I think this is more of a male thing. And I think that's just because they've trapped themselves in this hierarchical thing that, and it's been for probably since the beginning of time, that wealth and power um, go together and sex. They're all this sort of soup of sure. things. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so basically people keep wanting money. Let me bring up, you know, I never go away from politics too much these days. The Koch brothers, I mean, how much more money could the Koch brothers possibly have? Um, I remember sitting next to somebody at a dinner and it was a midterm election and he was going on about how the Koch brothers are such patriots. And I said to him, yeah, nothing says I love America like, like poisoning little children's drinking water. So how mm-hmm. much money do you need to do that to people? Mm-hmm. And so what is it about? It's not just about the money and the power makes you feel like you're going to be immortal. And guess what? We're not. We're not. And so, so I came upon this uh, quote from Lil Wayne that the problem with having too much money is you never have enough money. And I thought that's really profound. Yeah. And so I just sort of kept spinning it out um, about the notion of, of love and what we do for love and what will what we will do in order to get that or to feel good or feel on top that we've that that um, we're never going to be vulnerable again. 
So mm-hmm. anyway, that was kind of the impetus for that poem. Last question for you is about your um, poem, Fishtail. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Can you say who that's about? I, I think, okay, or- I didn't get married until I was in now now it's different you know every sort of generation like my my mother's generation if they weren't married by the time they were 22 they were a spinster Hmm. so I got married when I was 34 which was already geriatric compared to my friends they had kids they were in school Mm and so I felt um quite old so that preamble is to say that I had um a, and I began dating when I was in high school. So there, no, not you, not you, not you, not you. Sure. So um, it's not about any one person, mm-hmm. but it's about um, the notion of seduction. We all want to be um, desirable mm-hmm. and we um, and desired, and then um, and then when you are, you know, it's like. Uh, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> yeah. To figure out what it is you really want and not to be in the game of it. So part of me understands why guys feel so vulnerable because nobody wants to be rejected. Women are used to being rejected. But for guys, it's 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 very it's harder for them. I mean, they're they're not yeah. they're not in training for it. It's sort of like you know we're we're we, we run the marathon, so we're used <laughs> to being rejected and waiting to be picked and all of that stuff. Less so now, although I swear to God, the the whole online dating thing is just torture Mm. with um, better technology. But Mm. it's never been easy and finding the right partner and, um, and, you know, uh, you have to be flirtatious in order to draw someone into your orbit. Mm -hmm. But then when you get that person, they may not be what you want. And so, yeah, yeah, it wasn't one person. It was sort of a whole... But I think knowing what you want, mm-hmm. and that changes. I think that, I think that, that you ladies are, I mean, I think if you, if you get married in your early 20s and you wind up still being with that person and still finding that that person is the one you want to be with, there's an enormous amount of luck because I think the kind of growth sure. that happens between when you're 20 and when you're 30 or 35 is really incredible, and I think that you understand yourself. In order to pick, make a good partnership, you really have to know. My mother once said to me when I was complaining about my husband, even though I mean I still complained, even though he was the one I wanted. Um, she said, "So he's not perfect. If he were, what would he want with you?" Uh-huh. <laughs> and I oh my think God. <laughs> I, there's a lot of. I told you, she's. Yeah. There's a lot of wisdom to that because none of us are perfect. Right. Right. So to know what it is that that really matters to you and to find someone who has those qualities that you're willing yeah. to overlook the part of them that's not perfect and they're willing, they're mature enough to overlook the parts of you that aren't, you have a much better chance of having a long time satisfying relationship. I just watched the um, documentary on uh, Gary Shandling, Mm. and he was talking about, like, he was very into meditation, and there was this conversation he was having at the end how we all put on these fronts or these masks of who we are, and it's all about hiding actually what's going on inside. And it's like, why is the focus on that? It's just like so wrong. The focus is on all the wrong things. So that's why it's so good that we're having this conversation and the show because 
hopefully we're focused on the right things. Well, it's trying. good. It's really interesting. And you ladies are very easy to talk to. And, and as are Ditto. you. Thank you, thank you Paula. Thanks so Thank lot. you. Thanks.